So Craig has invited me in the light, I think, of all that is going on, um, and of course with Tuesday being Human Rights Day, a very significant day for us as South Africans, to help us again just to think about the value of human rights um, and how it particularly relates to the unity of the nation. Um, and what possible responses could be for us as we find ourselves in a season in the history of our country where I think many of our fellow countrymen and women feel that their rights may be We hope that um, as we look at and consider s some of these um, uh, facts that come at us from the scriptures, that um, God might give you some revelation to us. So, so Human Rights Day, as we know, is commemorated on March 21st to remind all South Africans about the sacrifices that accompanied the struggle for the attainment of democracy and social equality. Um, it also reminds us of the events of the 21st of March 1960, when the community of Sharpville and Langa as well, Langa across the way here, um, townships like their fellow compatriots across the country embarked on a protest march against pass laws. Um, and as we can recall, um, the, the apartheid police shot and killed 69 of those protesters at Sharpville, many of whom perished as they fled the country. This tragedy became known as the Sharpville Massacre, and to the world it exposed the then apartheid government's deliberate violation of Then our newly instated democratic government declared March the 21st Human Rights Day um, to commemorate and to honor those who fought for the liberation of all Africans across the globe. Now it is out of this difficult and trying past with some of those aspects still lingering with us today that our constitution is hailed as one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. But where has all of this brought us to? As we reflect on that fateful day, March 21st, as we reflect on everything that has brought us to this point, what does that mean to us today? Do we see that this progressive constitution and governance as it relates to human rights, has brought us to a better place 20 years ago or so. Do we see that? Is that something that we as South Africans can declare? Because while we enjoy the freedoms that democracy brings, we currently still struggle and wrestle with many issues related to what some might call questionable governance amongst many other factors. And so as we know, as we follow our media, we know that we have an unemployment rate that stands currently at 15%. We know that we have currently an electricity shortage. We know that we have issues related to a culture of corruption. 
we know that we have higher rates of gender-based violence, we still struggle with race relations, we have high levels of crime, how do we make sense of all of this in the light of the journey that they call discipleship? I, I read this book a while back, written by um, the Reverend Dr. Alan Busak, and um, the book speaks to our South African context, and it's entitled Pharaohs on Both Sides of the Blood and Waters. And in the book, he asks this question. He asks, after the civil rights and anti-apartheid struggles, are we truly living in post-racial, post-apartheid societies where the word struggle is now understood? In the book, um, he reminds us that the pharaohs that we left behind in our old Egypt were far more corrupt, especially as it relates to human rights, than the pharaohs that we now have in our promised land. But what they have in common is that they have all been corrupted by man's insatiable greed for empire and for power. Something that history has shown us tramples on the rights of fellow human beings. And so as we continue to wrestle with this as South Africans, I think for this morning, the first question that I would like us to consider is how human rights actually relate to faith. Is it something that the message of the gospel speaks to? Or is it simply a political idea? Something that has nothing to do with Jesus. Something that should not be allowed within the Anglican Church. As we consider scripture, we note that the Bible begins for, for us with the story of creation. God speaks the universe into existence. And within that story, is the account of the creation of humankind. According to the Bible, above and beyond everything else that God made, human beings are special. We are his crowning achievement as it were. The book of Genesis records the moment when God decided to create human beings for us. In Genesis chapter 1, it says... Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So according to the Bible, humans are different. We are different because unlike all the other creatures on the planet, we have been created in God's image. No other creation on this world can be called human. Everyone bears what Christian teachings call the imago Dei, which is Latin for image of God. 
and therefore we are often referred to as image bearers. And for this reason, human beings have value. They have value over and above anything else that exists within God's creation. And when this notion is applied to ethics and human rights, it becomes revolutionary. It changes the way with which we engage with the world as opposed to the balance of nature. We are all made in the image of God, every human being on this planet. And this is what makes our worth and our dignity inherent and inseparable from who we are. Whether governments recognize human rights or not, that truth remains. We do not have rights because we deserve them. We do not have rights because we have earned them. We do not have rights because we are white. We do not have rights because we are black, male or female. We do not have rights because we are South African or Zimbabwean. We have rights because each of us is made in the image of God and therefore has inherent worth and dignity. And this is true despite the fact that throughout history, as we reflect back, various cultures have recognized and pursued the rights of different groups. Perhaps only men. Perhaps only white men. Perhaps only landowners, perhaps only the wealthy, perhaps only very particular cultures. In ancient Greece, the birthplace of democracy, men were viewed as having rights, while women and children and non-Greeks were viewed primarily as property. But it is in Christianity and more specifically in the Bible that we find the source of universal human rights. The Bible gives us a beautiful image of our value as beings that have been created in God's image, but it also presents us with a challenge. And the challenge is this. How do we, as followers of Jesus, respond in kind when we see or experience ourselves the rights of human beings being taken? How do we respond? Do we surrender? And if so, on what grounds do we surrender? Do we fight? And if so, how do we fight? Do we stage a revolt? And if we stage a revolt, who does that include? Or do we leave the country? And if so, which country would be perfect? Or do we simply do nothing and make sure that only our interests are served? Those are some of the things, the questions that we as followers of Jesus sometimes entertain as we experience what we are As followers of Jesus, we are trying to find a response, I believe, to these questions. And I think a really good starting point for us is to look at this. 
and to try and learn from you what a response should be for us in times of adversity. Now, admittedly, we live in different times in history with different contexts, but I believe that there are certain principles that remain constant. So let's consider how Jesus responded in his time to human rights being infringed upon by empirical powers, by superpowers of that time. Now, before we focus in on Jesus in this context, I think it's helpful to note that actually ranging all the way from Genesis' story to the final vision that we find in the book of Revelation, we see the setting of God's people consistently, always amidst various superpowers, amidst various empires of the biblical world, right the way from Egypt and Babylon all the way down through to Rome. We see God's people being situated and have to face and engage with empires and superpowers. And so I think it's helpful to see Jesus' confrontation with the superpowers, with the empire of his day, as in the broader context of the biblical faith community's confrontation with various superpowers or empires. And so when Jesus himself comes up against the powers of his time, he is also, as it were, continuing in the prophetic tradition of God's people, a tradition that goes back for centuries. Confronting the powers of the day was something that was unavoidable for Jesus. When Jesus was approached about paying imperial tax in Mark chapter 12, this is what he said. He said to those who were questioning him, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? And the reply was, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to the empire what is the empire's. But give to God what is God's. Jesus didn't live in a place or a time when all was well in the land for all of its citizens. Jesus lived in a time where there was much turmoil. And I think sometimes as we read through scripture, we overlook or miss that fact. Jesus lived in a time where turmoil was brought by empires. Now, as we know, during the time of Jesus, that whole region was run by and ruled and reigned over by the Roman Empire. And it stretched across the entire Mediterranean region. And this included little Judea, as we see there just beneath Syria. Judea fell on an important trade route connecting Europe to the south and it was also an important piece of land for the Romans in terms of military conquest. Rome conquered Judea 
Jerusalem and its surroundings in the year 63 BC, 63 years before Jesus was born. And the Roman Senate at that time declared Herod the Great to be king of the Jews in the year 40 BC. And they declared him king only as a means to keep and to maintain Roman control over the Galilean and Judean people. So Herod was called a client king. And he came to power through corrupt means, actually, through his wealthy father's good relations with Julius Caesar. But Rome continued to maintain its dominion over Judea. Now, being colonized, as it were, by the Romans brought along with it many difficulties, similar possibly in some way to what Africa might have experienced by being colonized by Europe. And as part of the Roman strategy, they started out their rule by doing a very thorough census in Judea. We actually read about that at the time of Jesus' birth, a census being taken. And they did that so that nobody would be able to escape having to pay the official taxes that were demanded by Rome. And when the population size was established and Rome knew exactly how much wealth could be extracted from the new territories, tax collectors were then employed to make certain taxes um, to be collected from people and they were meticulously collected and managed. You see how it worked with these tax collectors was that the tax collectors were given a target and Rome wanted and demanded that particular amount and anything more that the tax collector collected was his. And so we understand why they were such hated people in that time. Taxation was the means by which the Roman elite were able to provide gifts for the Roman citizens as well as building up the mother city of Rome with bolding campaigns to further their growth. And so there were lots of taxes. I was, I was actually amazed when I read through the list of taxes that um, were used during that time. There were taxes on produce. They had a sales tax. They had temple taxes if you went to the temple. They had occupational taxes depending on what kind of work you did. They had custom taxes. They had transit taxes depending on how many animals or wagons or how many wheels your wagon had. They had so many taxes. It was amazing. And then on top of all of these taxes, for the people in Judea, there was also a grain toll. And the historian Josephus, Josephus records Rome having collected annually up to 400,000 tons of grain from its conquered regions to feed the population. And now for the Jews in Judea, on top of all of that, Besides the tax that the Roman Empire was collecting, there was also the tax that was required by the Jewish temple state in the form of a tithe. The historian Richard Worsley describes it like this. 
He says the demand for tribute to Rome and taxes to Herod, in addition to the tithes and offerings to the temple and priesthood, dramatically escalated the economic pressures on peasant provinces, whose livelihood was perennially marginal at best. After decades of multiple demands from multiple layers of rulers, many village families fell increasingly into debt and were faced with loss of their family inheritance of land. The impoverishment of families led to the dis disintegration of village communities, the fundamental social form of such an agrarian society. These are precisely the deteriorating conditions that Jesus addresses in his gospel. Impoverishment, hunger, and death. So what response could Jesus have had to living in a society where this was going on? Jesus would not have been able to avoid any of this. And as a rabbi, Jesus actually had some options for the way in which he could respond to all of this. And Jesus' response would invariably align him with the aspirations of some others. And what were these options before Jesus? I've identified four. We'll go through them quickly. Options that Jesus could have aligned himself with. The first option was that Jesus could have collaborated or aligned himself with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the military and priestly ruling class. They were extremely wealthy and they were centered in Jerusalem. And they were also generally the family of the high priest. They decided to collaborate with Rome and they hoped that Israel could continue to exist along with their status. And they figured the more that they aligned themselves with Roman rule, that their lot in life would increase accordingly. So that was the first option that Jesus had. In seeing and interpreting and living within that space, this was something that Jesus could have done. Secondly, Jesus could have gone along with the Pharisees. The Pharisees understood all of Israel as God's loyal priesthood. And they believed that an independence from Roman oppression would only come if all of Israel lived by the purity restrictions placed there by the priests. And so for them, if all of Israel would become devout once again, then God would rid Israel of these Gentile Roman invaders. And while often seen as the villains in the Gospels, the Pharisees were the moderates between Roman collaboration and active resistance. So they were somewhere in the middle. We notice as we see Jesus' engagement with these two groups so far, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for the three years of Jesus' ministry, he had lots of interaction with Pharisees as we read through the Gospels. 
But when we look in the, at the last few days of Jesus' life, his engagement was with the high priests, with the Sadducees at that time, with the real ones who held the power and the kings that had power. Then there was another option that Jesus had. He could have joined the revolutionaries who were the zealots. And instead of active collaboration like the Sadducees and spiritual reform like the Pharisees, the zealots were people who actively resisted Roman oppression. The zealots were militant nationalists. They believed not in spiritual purity, but rather wanted literal purity in the land. They just wanted these people out. And they hoped to recruit the ordinary people from the land to join them in this physical wrestling battle. And they believed that once all of Israel joined this fight against Rome, then God would miraculously intervene on the side of his people, the Israelites, saving the day against incredible odds. In fact, the zealots did eventually get their way. They started a revolution in Jerusalem, but unfortunately God didn't intervene. Instead, Roman soldiers captured and they utterly destroyed Jerusalem 70 years later. And then there was the last option, the fourth option, the option of resignation, of just simply aligning yourself with the common people. Beyond the wealthy collaborators, beyond the spiritually devout and the zealous revolutionaries were the ordinary people of everyday life. The common people were the ones who bore the brunt of the excessive taxation and the Roman anger for these attacks by the zealots. They were the ones who bore the burden of the religious demands that were placed upon them by the Pharisees. The common people were a people who were weary and resigned to their fate. And so those would have been, I think, the options that were before Jesus in that time, in that space of empirical view. Now, which path did Jesus choose? Did he choose the Sadducees? Did he align himself with the Pharisees? Did he go with the, with the Zealots? Or did he simply resign? And I think we know what that response is because Jesus came from the common people. He ministered to the common people and was followed and celebrated by the common people. Now, as Jesus was going about ministering, Outside observers and even some, I believe, of the 12 disciples were watching and wondering how Jesus would fit into or how he would resist some of these options that were before him. And at times we see in scripture how Jesus was pushed into a particular direction when crowds and followers demanded that Jesus become what they wanted the Messiah to be. But Jesus brought an alternative to all of those options. 
in Matthew chapter 3 and into 4, we see Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He goes into the desert where he is tested by the Satan. He comes back from that. And then Matthew says that from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' entire three-year ministry revolved around the reality of a new kingdom being established. Jesus' kingdom and its rule is not like Rome's kingdom. It's not strong and overpowering and able to impose its will on other people. It's not working to build wealth. It's not working to build infrastructure and might. A place where the strong overpower the weak and exploit and extract resources. That is not what Jesus' kingdom is about. In fact, Jesus says the greatest person in God's kingdom is the weakest. Someone who loves and serves the poor. Jesus says we live under God's reign, under his rule, when we respond to evil and the powers that be by loving our enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom that makes no sense to the kingdom of God. And admittedly, sometimes it makes no sense to us that we are called to do things that invariably goes against the grain of what the kingdom of this world is pushing us into. And Jesus wants us to align ourselves with him rather than any other option. Our response as followers of Jesus to governments that appear to have lost the plot concerning what good governance and care and ministry should be is to love them. but also to stand up for the principles of the constitution of the kingdom of God. And this is not easy. In fact, it is messy. And it requires us to get our hands dirty and to rethink how we allocate our resources. It also sounds foolish in both is around the corner. We are starting to think about it now. We are starting to make plans for that particular time. And we will again remind ourselves of what Jesus accomplished for all of creation at the cross. And we will again reflect on the fact that Jesus used his death on the cross to bring to a climax his time of earthly ministry. He also communicated to us in that amazing act of love that all of humanity has value 
as an image bearer. But when Jesus was crucified, the Romans also wanted to accomplish something with that crucifixion. With the crucifixion, the Romans wanted to humiliate Jesus. And they wanted to make the statement that the rights of this Jewish peasant rabbi don't that was what they were trying to communicate. But what Rome had intended as a sarcastic coronation of Jesus as a king with a crown of thorns actually presents to us a real coronation of Jesus as a real king. And when Rome raised Jesus up on the cross, they were really raising him up as the future emperor and king of all of creation. And nothing could have been more in line with the way Jesus acted and lived. By taking the ultimate symbol of Roman power, this crucifixion, and subverting it, overthrowing it, the power of Rome itself was shaken in that moment. This mighty empire that thought it was all theirs. And as we read the Gospels, I think the Gospel writers could not have known it at the time, but within a few centuries of that act, the Roman Empire would indeed fall. And a new world order would start to rise. But before Rome was shuffled off into history, they managed themselves to acknowledge Jesus as the ultimate ruler and handed Christianity one of the most powerful and unconsciously ironic symbols in the world. So our response and our engagement, I think, with the challenges that we face in these last days, I believe must rally around this act of sacrificial love for God. We must rally around this act of sacrificial love for our neighbors, for those around us, as it was modeled for us. Because Jesus has secured for us the right to have our names recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life and to stand in the presence of the Father on the day of judgment with these two words. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you have created us in your image. We thank you for the worth and the value that you bestow upon us as your creation. And so, Lord, as we continue to wrestle with these questions that are presented to us by the season that we find ourselves in, we ask that you would come again and remind us. Come again and remind us that we are ambassadors in your kingdom. Remind us of the road that lies before us because of the road that you have walked. And so, Lord, as we enter into this week, even as we face tomorrow, we ask, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would remind us 
of what our goal is as ambassadors of Jesus in this place, in this time. Bless us, Lord.